Thank you, Susan, for leading us in the service. And uh, welcome to everybody, uh, whether we're in the physical service or whether we're watching this uh, online. Yeah. Please join me in prayer as we start and as we come to listen to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that indeed you are the God who speaks to us your living word. So we pray that your spirit may open up our hearts to receive your word, to reflect upon it, and to act upon it in our lives. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, where are we in the story now? Last week, starting from Genesis 34, and in an overview of a massive seven chapters, we saw the focus and attention turn to Jacob's children, right? And in particular, one of his children, Joseph, from Genesis 37 onwards. And in those chapters, we saw a direct contrast between Joseph and his brothers. So on one hand, we have the innocent, truth-telling dreams of Joseph versus, on the other hand, the evil, nightmarish, hate-filled schemes of his brothers. And then we have the sexual purity and the chastity of Joseph versus the sexual irresponsibility and laxness, laxness of Judah. But yet, in a way that's unimaginable to the reader, the faithfulness of Joseph was not immediately rewarded. Instead, he faced deeper trouble. He was thrown in prison because of the false accusations of Potiphar's wife. And then while he was in prison, he was forgotten by the cupbearer whom he helped. And it was only after a whole two years that a cupbearer remembered Joseph and had Joseph interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And it was only then that things changed for Joseph. He was made the second highest ranking and the most powerful man in Egypt, only next to Pharaoh himself. Now, according to the passage, Joseph, when he rose to power, he was 30 years old. He was 17 when he was sold to the traders who brought him down to Egypt. So in other words, you do the math, 13 years, 13 years of a life filled with ups and downs, risings and fallings. 13 years of a life learning to trust God in all these. And now after the 13 years, Joseph is ready for the final test to meet his brothers once again. I have to say it up front that there is no way that I'll be able to cover the six chapters in one sermon. So I want to start by providing an overview of how the story develops with each chapter. Uh, in order to help us to capture the main point, I've included a hashtag to summarize the main point of each section. Okay, so you can see that in the screen in front of you. We have Genesis 42, 1 to 28, and the main encounter focuses on Joseph and his brothers, round one. Okay? And the hashtag, you could say, is awkward, you are spies. Okay? Then in Genesis 42, verse 29, all the way to 43, 14, the uh, focus switches to Jacob and his sons, the conversation between Jacob and his sons. And the hashtag, you can say over there, is do you want to take my other son too? Okay? And then we go back to Genesis 43, verse 15, all the way to 45, 15. And in there, we go back to Joseph and his brothers again, encounter round two. And uh, you could say the hashtag in there is reconciliation with bucket of tears. 
And then in Genesis 45, from verse 16 to 28, it focuses back to Jacob and his sons again. So it's this tossing between uh, Joseph and his brothers and Jacob and his sons, okay? And the hashtag in there you can say is, I'm going to see Joseph. And then Genesis 46, 1 to 27, Jacob sets off for Egypt. And in there we have a record of all the families uh, that, that went along uh, with Jacob. And the hashtag you can say is, what a big party entering Egypt. And then Genesis 46, 28 to 47, 31, Jacob settles in Egypt. Uh, and the hashtag you can say is, but I know this is not my home. And that's what Jacob tells Joseph, this is not my home, even as I settle in here. Okay? Uh, for the interest of time, today I will just focus on the first three sections that we see before us. Okay? So Genesis 42. Now that begins with Jacob doing the most practical thing possible when faced with a nationwide disaster. And that is, you go to where the solution is. As God enabled Joseph to foretell, there will be seven years of famine followed by seven good years of harvest, okay? Uh, sorry, the other way around. As God enabled Joseph to foretell, there will be seven years of good harvest, then followed by seven years of famine, right? And indeed, the famine came by the time we reached Genesis 42. But Joseph was well prepared, so much so that he sold grain to even the Egyptians. You notice that? He sold grain even to the Egyptians. And in this way, he was very shrewd. He was able to consolidate Pharaoh's power for Pharaoh, right? And not only did he sell grain to the Egyptians, he sold grain to all the world, to whoever that was willing to come and buy at the price that was stipulated by Joseph. So it's a little bit like the COVID-19 vaccine now. Everybody's looking forward to it. You know, whichever country that is able to provide the first effective vaccine you will find all the other nations turning to this country. Except, we won't have to make our way down to that country, correct? Unlike the olden days where they had no import-export trade yet. So the only way, the only thing they could do, the only way that everybody in the world could do was to go down to Egypt. And that's what Jacob did. He sent his sons to Egypt to buy grain. Except that you notice 42 verse 4, Jacob did not send Benjamin for fear that harm might come to Benjamin. And obviously, the hurt and loss of Joseph still haunted Jacob. Furthermore, if you remember in Genesis 37, 12, it was Jacob himself who sent Joseph to go and look for his brothers. And Joseph never made it back from that fateful trip. Perhaps Jacob was still dealing with his guilt and loss. And hence, he did not want to risk his only other son from the same mother, Rachel. Jacob probably also did not trust his other sons. And this mistrust will show up in the conversation that he and his sons have later in the passage. Okay? So the ten brothers trot along to Egypt and they find themselves before the presence of Joseph. In fact, they find themselves bowing before Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. He remembers the dream he had of them bowing down to him some 13 years ago. See, I guess some dreams you will never forget. Most of the dreams that we have, we just wake up the next morning and we forget what the dream was, right? But for Joseph, this dream he never forgot. And in a strange move, even as Joseph sees his brothers bowing down to him, 
he treats the brothers in a very harsh and rough manner. And he accused them of being spies. Now, what are the reasons for Joseph acting this way? Could it be out of revenge? Could it be that he wanted to give his brothers a taste of their own medicine, which they gave to him so many years ago? Now, we are not told, but personally, I don't think that it is out of a revenge motive. I don't think so. The very naming of Joseph's two children in Genesis 41, verses 51 to 52, he names his first child Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And then he names his second child Ephraim, meaning for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So the naming of his children shows to me that Joseph has come to see God's hand in all that has happened in his life. Joseph, you could say by this stage, had learned to surrender to God fully. Instead, I suspect that Joseph did what he did, being so harsh to his brothers. It was in order to get his brothers to bring along Benjamin so that Joseph could see Benjamin, his full biological brother whom he missed. So Joseph was really saying, you want to prove to me that you are not spies? Very easy. One of you go back and bring the youngest brother to me. Yet this action would prove to be a very difficult one for the brothers. After all, who wants to be the one to go back and tell Jacob, their father, that he had lost the other brothers in Egypt and now he wants to take Benjamin to Egypt as well? Or maybe on a more sinister reading, the brothers were reluctant to allow one of their number to leave Egypt for fear that this one will simply abandon the rest of them. So anyway, three days later, Joseph makes it easier for them. One of the brothers will stay, the rest can go back to Canaan. But they had to come back with Benjamin. Otherwise, the brother left behind will die. Interestingly, Joseph himself chooses the hostage. And he takes Simeon when one would expect him to take Reuben. After all, Reuben was the oldest in the family. Most likely, it's because Joseph overheard Reuben's command in 42.22. This is what Reuben said, Did I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now this is a really interesting comment from Reuben's part, because out of the blue, Reuben mentions about Joseph and the unjust act that the brothers did to him. Perhaps being in Egypt brings back memories for Reuben and the brothers, and it conjures the old ghost of their guilt to come back and to haunt them. After all, when they sold Joseph to the traders, the brothers all knew that these traders were on their way to Egypt. This goes to show us, time, in Joseph's brother's case, it would have been 13 years. Time, may be able to suppress the guilt that comes from previous sins that we have committed. But time can never take that feeling of guilt away. That feeling of guilt can only be resolved by forgiveness offered and forgiveness received. So Joseph, in hearing Reuben's command, 
decides to keep Simeon as hostage instead, believing that Reuben might just do the right thing after the rest of the brothers leave Egypt. So the brothers set off in verse 26, only to find one surprise along the way back. One of the brothers discovers that the money that he paid to buy the grain had been put back into the sack. And instead of leaping for joy like what we would do, I mean, imagine, right? Imagine uh, you buy something from Lazada 11-11 sale, huh? one, one sale. And for those of you that miss out on the Lazada 11-11 sale, I'm sorry, too bad. But don't worry, don't despair because the Lazada 12-12 sale is coming, okay? So, um, yeah, I can't see whether you're laughing beneath the mask or not, but I take it that you are, okay? So imagine you buy something from the Lazada 11-11 sale, and when your item arrives, you happily open the packaging, and then you find that whatever money that you paid for the item is packed along with the item itself. I mean, we'll be jumping up for joy at our free purchase, right? Isn't it? Not so for the brothers. Instead, they saw this as an oh-oh moment. Oh-oh. Or like what Pastor Jason, who is, uh, you could say, among the pastoral staff team, he's more linguistically fluent in Hokkien. Okay? He said, it was xiao liao for them. Okay? Now, for the non-local, xiao liao in Hokkien really means, oh-oh, I'm in trouble. Game over. Good game. Okay? For the youth, good game. So trembling with fear, they saw this as divine retribution that came from God. And very interestingly, if I'm not wrong, this is the first time that God has been mentioned by the brothers. Prior to this verse, you never hear the brothers mentioning God. This is the first time they mention God, and it is spoken in the context of divine retribution for their evil sins that they had previously committed. So with that, we are taken into the second section of the narrative from Genesis 42, 29 to 43, 14, Jacob and his sons. The brothers finally make their way back to Jacob. I can only imagine what a long and pensive journey it must have been, and probably there's a lot of arguing and finger-pointing along the way. And they report to their father all that had happened. And then verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Now, this was oh-oh moment number two, or xiao liao for the second time. Okay? Now, they could easily be seen not only as spies, but also as thieves. It would make going back to Egypt all the more difficult. And despite Reuben's offer to trade his two sons, for the two sons that Jacob had lost, Jacob does not budge. Jacob's point of view, he would rather sacrifice Simeon than lose Benjamin. Is this a display of favoritism again? Like what Jacob showed to Joseph so many years back? Or is this a very natural thing that you and I would do if we were in Jacob's shoes? That we will hold on to what would have been for us the last living memory of the spouse that we love so dearly. You decide as the reader which one it is. So Genesis 43, the Jacobian household settles down to eat of the grain in the midst of the famine, and eat they do till the grain runs out. And prompted by Judah in verse 8, 
who offers himself as a pledge of safety for Benjamin, Jacob is forced to return the ten brothers to Egypt along with Benjamin. And in 43, verses 11 and 12, in what I see as a classic Jacob moment, Jacob the planner, Jacob the schemer, what I see in there is he gets his son to take some of the choice fruits of the land in their bags and to carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. The sons are also to take double the money with them, including the money that was returned in the mouth of the sex the other time. With Jacob hoping that all of this will show the situation to be an oversight and that the sons will prove themselves as honest men. Then in verse 14, in what I see as another Jacob moment, but this time, it is the older Jacob, it is the more mature Jacob, we see Jacob turning to God in prayer. In realising that God has blessed him and granted him favour all the years of his life when he did not deserve it, Jacob now pleads upon the same mercy of God that he may see Simeon and Benjamin again. But if he is to be bereaved of his children, he is to be bereaved. Ironically though, some of the items that Jacob told his sons to bring down to Egypt, spices, balm and myrrh, they were the very items that accompanied Joseph down to Egypt in the first place. So if you look back at Genesis 37, 25, when he was sold off to the traders, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So Joseph was now in a position to receive these gifts from his brothers that once accompanied him on his way to Egypt 13 years ago. The only big difference being, Joseph would now receive these gifts as Egyptian law and not as a slave. And so the brothers depart, this time 11 of them, including Benjamin, to go back to Egypt. And that brings us to the third section, Genesis 43, verse 15 to 45, 15. Joseph and his brothers, round two, hashtag. Reconciliation with Bucket of Tears. Now, the meeting between Joseph and his brothers goes off well at first. Joseph invites the brothers for a meal. The brothers, however, are suspicious and think that it is a trap to corner them, an opportunity for Joseph to make them his slaves, and all because of the money that was found in their sacks the last time. So they explain themselves to the steward of Joseph's house. And it is only upon the steward's assurance that all is well, and then the steward brings out Simeon to reunite with his brothers, that all their fears are quelled. So the brothers and Joseph dine together. And for the first time, Joseph saw Benjamin, his beloved fool brother, after a grueling 13 years of separation. The plot thickens, however. On the return journey, Joseph, for reasons that are initially unclear, he orders the stewards to put uh, as much grain as the sacks could carry, along with each man's money at the mouth of the sack. And here is the important point. His silver cup that Joseph himself used for divination 
into Benjamin's sack. The men depart back for Jacob. The steward catches up with them and accuses the brothers of taking Joseph's cup. Before the brothers know that it is in their baggage, they respond to the accusation with a rash vow. Um, chapter 44, verse 9, they offer the death of the culprit and the enslavement of all the other brothers if the cup is found among them. The steward modifies their words, saying no need to be so, you know, so serious, so harsh, and tones their rash vow down. No need for the guilty one to die and all to be slaves. Uh, just the culprit will remain as the slave and the rest will be blameless, and you can carry on along your way. Okay, verse 10. It is at this point that I think we understand Joseph's reason for setting things up this way. He wants to keep Benjamin with him. So the brothers allow their sex to be searched. And it is at this point that we have oh-oh moment number three, or xiao liao for the third time. The cup is found in Benjamin's sack. The whole party, yeah, they tear their clothes, they turn around, they return to Egypt, and there the focus is on Judah, who, representing the brothers, speaks up on behalf of them. And his speech from Genesis 44, verses 14 to 34, is a passionate one. Remarkably, it begins with this very interesting statement, verse 16. God has found out the guilt of your servants. What guilt? Because as far as you and I as readers know, they did not put the money back into the sacks, neither did they take Joseph's cup. So what guilt are they referring to? It probably wouldn't be too far off to say the guilt of the violence that they did to Joseph. It had caught up fully with them, at least with Judah. That's why here we see Judah pleading with Joseph to act mercifully by allowing him to take the place of Benjamin and for him to remain as Joseph's slave so that Benjamin can go back and Jacob can see Benjamin safe and sound. Otherwise, not seeing Benjamin will surely grieve Jacob and hasten Jacob to the grave. Now with this speech, I think we can say we see a changed Judah. I think we can say we see repentance. Repentance represented in the form of self-sacrifice. As Old Testament scholar Yen Proven states aptly, he says this, where there was once only jealousy, hatred, and a willingness to sacrifice a favoured younger brother, a son of Rachel, in order to be rid of an annoyance, now we see a desire to sacrifice on behalf of a favoured younger brother and another son of Rachel in order to save him from slavery and to save their father from further grief. This is why Judah features in the story as much as Joseph does. So I call upon the slide again, Yem Proven again. He says this, it is interesting then to notice the way in which Judah in particular, and not just the brothers in general, becomes a different person in the course of the narrative that follows. Judah does not care much about other people in Genesis 37 to 38. Later, he comes to care at least about Benjamin and his father. And he, it looks like, behaves self-sacrificially in respect of both of them. 
In Genesis 37 to 38, Judah does not yet have any sense of the universe as a moral place where divine providence is working out its ways in pursuit of the good and in judgment of the bad. By the time we reach Genesis 44, Judah is apparently in a very different space. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. 44.16 Like Jacob in his story, Judah is on a journey in Genesis 37 to 50, which turns out to be as much a Judah story as a Joseph story. Thank you. Judah's speech brings Joseph to a point where he cannot control himself any longer. He reveals his identity to his brothers. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were too shocked to answer. No, in fact, the right word is that they were too dismayed to answer. Verse 3. Here was their last and final oh-oh moment number four, or xiao liao for the fourth and the final time. They were probably all thinking to themselves that they were surely done for this time. Now that Joseph is still alive, he was surely going to exact revenge upon them. But not so on Joseph's part. And that's why Joseph speaks what I see as the climax of the entire passage that we have before us today. So I call on the slide. The key verse. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you saw me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will, neither be, there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God. These are words which show fully what was hinted in the earlier naming of Joseph's children. Joseph's sweet and complete surrender to God for all that had happened and was happening in his life. It was this complete surrender and trust in God that prevented Joseph from seeing himself as merely a victim of the political and wicked scheming and manoeuvring of men. But it was that enabled him to see himself as an instrument used by God to carry out God's purposes. It was this complete surrender and trust in God, knowing that God has his hand in all the moments of his life that led to Joseph being able to forgive his brothers of the horrendous evil they had done to him when the brothers found it hard to forgive themselves. Following this proclamation of God's purposes, Joseph asked his brothers to go and fetch Jacob and bring Jacob to where he is. And the scene closes in such a way that it would have outdone any K-drama of our day. Here you have a bunch of grown-up men weeping over each other. But weeping not tears of regret or sorrow, but tears of joy. Joy that comes from the free flowing of forgiveness and reconciliation. The remainder of this chapter, Genesis 45, and all the way to the end of Genesis 47, like what I said earlier, I won't have time to go through in this one sermon. 
but hopefully I just call on the slide again just to remind us of the broad overview. Okay? Genesis 45, 16 to 28, uh, the sons go back and report to Jacob. And uh, it's, a, it's a good report. And the hashtag there you could say is, I'm going to see Joseph. Okay? So Jacob, uh, Jacob is excited. Uh, Genesis 46, 1 to 27, Jacob sets off for Egypt. And altogether, 70 people went with him down to Egypt. And as we know, the number 70 it symbolizes completion, it symbolizes perfection, okay? And it's a way of saying that God's promises were being enacted out as a, as a, as a, as a full and complete uh, number of Jacob's uh, family goes down to Egypt in order to find uh, deliverance from the famine there, okay? And then Genesis 46, 28 to 47, 31, Jacob settles in Egypt, and uh, here's there's a little and there's an episode where Joseph arranges with Pharaoh uh, where his family can settle in. And the key point, I think, in this passage is the last bit where um, Jacob actually tells Joseph and says, I'm about to go the way of my ancestors, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to take me out of Egypt when you eventually leave Egypt. Okay? And because uh, uh, Jacob knows, hashtag, that this is not his home. Okay? Three lessons for us to reflect upon as we draw to a close. First, the strange workings of God in fulfilling His purposes and way of salvation. Now, who would ever have imagined that this was all part of God's plan and purpose in fulfilling His salvation plan? The plan that He promised to Abraham. Who would have imagined that God's fulfillment of the promise He made to Abraham would involve bringing Joseph to Egypt and granting him the interpretation of dreams such that Joseph will rise to power and be that instrument of salvation to Jacob and his family during the time of famine. And here's the crucial point. Who would ever have imagined that Joseph would need to go through so much personal suffering and anguish in order to be shaped by God into that instrument of his? In the same way, who would ever have imagined that God's full and final fulfillment of His salvation plan would involve the suffering and death of His own Son, so that through the Son, the Father might grant salvation to all belonging to Adam's race. Who would have imagined, in the same way, that God would allow 2020 to be such... I, I know this word has been overused, but forgive me for using it again to be such an unprecedented year. Who would have imagined? But we need to continue to look to God and realize that indeed, sometimes God works in strange ways that you and I cannot understand. The words of Romans 10, 33 ring true. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Second, like Joseph had to learn, we need to trust in the strange workings of God. You see, could Joseph ever have known that he would be carried off to Egypt and go through all the personal hurt and injustice and suffering that he did in order to serve as God's instrument of salvation? Do you think he could ever have known that? On hindsight, he was able to say what he said when he revealed his identity to his brothers 
in that crucial passage in Genesis 45, verse 5 to 8, God sent me before you to preserve life. He was able to say that on hindsight. But when Joseph was going through the pit, both the physical pit that his brothers threw him in some 17 years ago as they betrayed him, some 13 years ago as they betrayed him, sorry, and the pit of prison as he sat there for two years for a crime that he did not commit. By the, same, by the way, the same word pit is used to describe Joseph's stay in prison. See Genesis 40, 15, okay? It's an interesting play of words, pit there. As Joseph sat in both pits, in the pit looking up and seeing all the brothers' faces, malicious smiles, looking down at him. As Joseph sat in the pit of prison for a crime he did not commit. I really don't think Joseph knew where his life was going or what God was doing with it then. He could only trust then. He had to learn the hard lesson of trusting in God and knowing that God has a loving purpose for him even when he cannot see what God is doing with his hand upon Joseph's life. And it is only when Joseph has learned that lesson of trusting completely in God that he could say what he said in Genesis 45. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph can only say those words after he has learned the hard lesson of trusting in God when you can't see God's work in your life. It's literally the words of the popular Christian chorus for Joseph. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. So allow me to ask, is it the same for you now? This week was release of PSLE results. So children, so the children out there, or maybe not so much the children, but more the parents. Yeah? Perhaps some of us are disappointed with the grades. Despite us putting our best effort, we can't get into a school of our choice. And we can't help but feel from the pressure and stress of society around us that this feels like the end for us. If that's us, then perhaps this is the time for us, children and parents alike, to learn and to relearn what Joseph had to learn. That God will take care of us even when we can't see his hand at work right now in our lives. Oh, I think of one of our former church members who had migrated overseas. And he's in the last few days of his late stage cancer. Doctors give him perhaps another three to four more weeks, perhaps till Christmas. And I'm sure this church member, his wife, and the two teenage children had to go through the hard lesson that Joseph had to go through. Why me? Where are you, God, in all this? Yet I'm encouraged because I know that this particular brother, like Joseph, has learned the lesson of trusting in God. The last time he came back to Singapore for a visit sometime earlier this year, a few of us gathered and he shared that one of his favorite songs was this one, and he played it for us back then. 
It's called Even If by the band Mercy Me. It's written from the Daniel passage where Daniel's three friends were about to be thrown into the furnace for refusing to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar built. And here's the chorus of the song. Show this like. I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. And even as his brother shared with us how this song ministered to him, I know that he's learned the lesson of trusting in God fully and surrendering to God. And the question for me back then was, this brother has learned this lesson, but have I learned this lesson? Have you learned this lesson? A lesson that I pray God will help me and many of us to learn when you and I are put to the test. Third, only when we have fully trusted and surrendered to God will we be able to forgive like Joseph did. See, many of us read this passage and we think to ourselves, oh man, how, how, how is Joseph able to forgive his brothers? How is he able to not take revenge on those who hurt him so much and caused him so much suffering when he has every power in his hand to be able to bring upon revenge on them? Yeah, I don't think I can ever act like Joseph. How can I ever forgive somebody like how Joseph did? And we long to be able to grow to a level where we too can forgive those who have hurt us the same way that Joseph experienced. Well, we can only grow to that level when we first have that deep trust and complete surrender to God's will that Joseph had. Because that deep trust and complete surrender leads us to a God perspective in all our sufferings and all that we go through. Anything less still leads us to a man or self perspective. And a man or self perspective will cry out, you did this to me, you hurt me, you sent me to my suffering and pain. And with that self perspective, we will never be able to forgive. But a God perspective will lead us to say, God sent me before you for this purpose. So it was not you who sent me there to that place which really, really hurt, but God. And with that perspective, with that God perspective, true forgiveness begins. May God truly bless the proclamation and the hearing of his word. Amen. I'd like to allow a few moments for us to just reflect upon what we have heard before I close in prayer. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Heavenly Father, as we listen to these words that came forth from Joseph's mouth, we wonder how anybody could say something like this. 
when we realize, O oh Lord, that it is only upon that sweet and full and complete surrender to you, to your will in our lives, to you acting in our lives and your hand upon our lives, even at times and in circumstances when we can't understand why you have to act this way. Lord, we realize that it's only when we have learned the lesson of sweet surrender and full trust that we are able to say these words that Joseph did, that we are able to forgive like Joseph did. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that truly your word may encourage us to keep looking to you and to remember that even at times where we can't trace your hand, we can trust your fatherly and loving heart for us. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.